Aloha, and welcome to SUP FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Here are your hosts, Nick and Simon. Aloha, Nick. Uh, hello, Mr. Simon. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing good, or should I say, good day, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Talking about an Australian today. Exactly. So um, you've got James Casey on. How did he get into paddleboarding? Well, it's kind of interesting. I mean, he's the five times Australian world champ. Did I just say the five time Australian champ? You did. And he started. You just said it twice, um, actually. Well, I did that so I could edit it out. <laughs> I'll keep it in. It sounds better. Uh, will do. But um, yeah, James Casey had an interesting intro to SEP Surf and, and he, um, his dad used to make boards and stand up paddle boards and things. And I don't know how, but they got hold of a board and they, they didn't have a paddle. So they trimmed down a rake because in, in Australia, they have plastic rakes with like fingers on them. And they just sliced mm-hmm. off the fingers and it turned into a triangular paddle. So it was quite Amazing. an interesting way to start stand up paddling. I don't think we've heard that story before. No, I think the be- the next best one was actually um, when Andy Bartlett started learning underneath an aircraft carrier in New York City. But uh, this one's pretty good too. But James Casey, as I said, is a five times Australian champ. But his biggest claim to fame is that he's the M2O champion. Now, for those of you who don't know what M2O is, the Molokai to Oahu race is run every year and has been for the last 23 years on a 32-mile course between two Hawaiian islands, crossing the Kaiwi Channel, which uh, comes in at a depth of 2,300 feet. And after trying really hard to get in, you'll hear all his stories about how he couldn't even get in to get to get a start on this thing. After a couple of years, he eventually won it. So um, it's, a, it's a really interesting story. And he's got some great stories about his partnership with Sunova, and he's designing boards. And, and yeah, he's generally an amazing guy to chat to. So uh, let's get a slice of action from James Casey. Good morning, James Casey. How's it going? Welcome to the SUP FM podcast, How's Life in Sydney, Australia? Yeah, great. Thanks for having me, Nick. And um, yeah, excited to uh, have a chat with you. Yeah, it's great to have you on. I mean, you're on the other side of the world to us. So it's 11 hours distance. I think it's early morning your time and late night my time. Yeah, couldn't. I mean, we were discussing it couldn't be a, a worse time zone difference, I think. But yeah, we, we made it work. So yeah, thanks. We were staying up late and <laughs> I didn't have to get up too early. Uh, no worries. Huh? Now, sometimes I do occasionally um, interviews in Hawaii as well. It's a similar deal, but other side of the world. Mm, so, yep. so um, let's go back to your roots. What uh, what drew you to the ocean in the very first place? Yeah, so my mum and dad, they were both um, surfers from way back. Um, dad used to shape surfboards and mum, she used to compete. Um, she actually won an amateur world title. Um way back in the day and she tells she always reminds us that but um she says so you know growing up on the beach as well um on sydney's northern beaches it's kind of it's what you do you know you you grow up you go to the beach you, you learn to surf and yet yeah, from as young as i can remember we were not always surfing but i was always in the ocean and um doing lots of different sports and um the ocean was always there it was always part of our lives awesome and it's always a challenge when you're a kid trying to get a surfboard but I guess if your dad was shaping boards that was no problem at all yeah so actually he didn't shape boards when he was when we were growing up he was he he started his own business and sold it by the time he was about 20 so <laughs> well before we were around but there are still a few of his old boards 
um, KC twins, twin fins were what he was famous for. And yeah, he created quite a good reputation back in the day. And yeah, <laughs> excellent. So, so you started um, you started surfing. Was that was your first introduction to the ocean? Um, my, we we actually I grew up. Was lucky enough. I grew up on the beach, like literally our house back onto the dunes. And um, my yeah, the, the first house I remember. And um, I remember getting a boogie board when I was probably four or five. And Dad used to pull us along the beach, like along the you know the, the wet sand on the boogie boards and he'd take us out, get us a few waves. And, um, yeah, it wasn't probably until I was probably a 10 or 11 that I really got into surfing. I remember we went for a surf, um, one of the local spots and I was just borrowing a board and, um, one of old, one of dad's old ones. And he goes, you can have this one. This is yours now. And I remember that was the first time that, okay, I'm a surfer now. That's pretty cool. You know? So it wasn't, <laughs> wasn't, I was always around the ocean, but I didn't really get this. That's I guess, a surfing bug until I was, you know, in year four, or year five, or probably, yeah, probably year three or year four at school. So, yeah, wasn't a super early starter. So then it was like a bunch of mates hanging around the beach and you just surfed and surfed. Did you ever do any any surf trips? Um, as a, Yeah, as a youngster, like I guess as, as a family, we used to always go up to Crescent Head, which is a classic point break wave about halfway towards Queensland um, from, from here. So it's about five or six hours up the coast and it's when whenever we did go up there i was in the water awesome. like and, uh, all because i remember as a kid in south africa i was in cape town and we'd we'd occasionally head up to um jeffrey's bay and go for a session up there for two weeks and it's just incredible those days were just just amazing surf trips are just the best ever yeah yeah crescent head's not quite as good as jeffrey's bay but it's um it's it's a nice wave <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think um yeah you can't not surf well at jeffrey's bay it's just such an incredible incredible break have you have you been down to south africa no it's on my bucket list though i was actually i got a few friends over there um tom and taryn king and um they've always been hassling me when you come into south south africa let us know um but yeah it's it's on on my list excellent so let's dig into your formal education i see you've got a bachelor of environment yeah so yeah you know finished high school and my parents have always been big on education so they said we don't care what you do we just want you to go to go to university and get a degree so I was like okay well I I still have no idea what I want to do you know in terms of work and job and life and all sort of stuff and I was like well just do something that I enjoy and um, I guess when I was going to university I guess climate change and it still is is sort of a big thing and something that I'm passionate about. Um, so I guess the course that lined up with that was a Bachelor of Environment and so it was um, Environmental Management and Climate Science. So that was super interesting um, and kind of worked into me becoming a meteorologist. Um, but I don't do any of that now. <laughs> I'm sort of more into the stand-up paddle and coaching side of things. But um, yeah, no, super interesting and yeah, uh, would love to do more study on it actually. But Time is not always your friend. I mean, it's always fascinated me as well. To be honest, geography was my favorite subject at school. But so you were—you actually worked as a meteor- meteorologist as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So I um after I finished uni, uh, there were like a few ads in uh, you know in the university sort of I guess forums, and um, they you know as a med- uh, one of the reasons I like geography so much is because of the weather. I like, think as a surfer, um, dad taught us to read the weather you know, before, you know, surf forecast, like good surf forecasts are out and all that I knew of them. And he would say, you know, when there's this low pressure system, it's going to bring us well to here. And, and when there's a high pressure system, it means there probably aren't going to be waves. So he taught me that early on. And 
um, yeah, it would sort of stuck with me and throughout all, you know, university and, and it was always, you know, a passion of mine. I also loved kite surfing. So, you know, looking for the wind was a meant looking at the weather maps. And when a job came up for working at a, as a meteorologist at Weather Zone, I was like, that'd be pretty cool. And yeah, it was super, super fun, um, super interesting. Um, and yeah, so I did that for a few years, just just casual, just casually because I was still at university uh, and and working a few other jobs. But yeah, meteorologist, that was that was a fun one. Yeah, and what was Weather Zone? Yeah, Weather Zone's, a, I guess, a forecasting company. So they do a lot of forecasts for the... You know, the Channel 9, I guess our, our big TV station, so 9, 10, and 7, um, and also like our ABC, so national broadcaster, and then also private clients as well, such as mining companies or, you know, energy companies, all of the above. So, yeah, it was a, it's, it's still a good company, and um, I chat to my boss every now and then. So, anyways, when are you coming back? <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um see, obviously you don't need to go back because you've got a career in stand-up paddle now is that is, can you were you competing in, in surfing before university and when did stand-up paddle come in come into play yeah so it's it's a good question because I, I didn't i guess for me growing up when i was first growing up stand-up paddle boarding didn't exist um so i grew up surfing and and actually playing rugby union I played rugby from when I was probably 10 to 22 and I you know, played like in our first grade competition here in Sydney um, for the Warringah Rats, which is like our local team. It's like, it's, I guess it's a, it's a step down from the professional. It's like, it's a semi, I call it semi-professional, but you know, I would have maybe earned maybe 500 bucks in match payments the whole time. So it's like, I wasn't a regular first grader, but I, I played a couple games and sort of, it was our growing up was like the representative level. And then, um, yeah, so I basically, when I first started uni and when I was at university, I was pretty heavily into the rugby union scene and, you know, playing each weekend and um, training Tuesday, Thursday, and then gym every what other position? day. And I was a flanker, so number seven. Ah, excellent. The hardest yeah. working man in the field. <laughs> That's it. The tackle tackle machine I was. I wasn't, wasn't the fastest, but I had a good engine. So I just sort of keep going, tick, tick along. Um, yeah, and I still a lot of mates still play rugby, and actually some of them are sort of retiring now. Their body's fallen apart, which I'm very thankful that I'd never got too many bad injuries. Um, yeah, because that was my next question. I mean, rugby's a hard sport, isn't it? So it's difficult oh, yeah. to to come out without any injuries. Yeah, yeah I, I broke my foot when I was like in a under fourteen, like sort of club competition, and I broke it like the second game, and I went to the you know the tent where they you know, assess what damage you've done. And they had no idea. They thought I dislocated a bone in my foot. So they're trying to push it back in. And it, I tell you what, I've never felt pain like that. <laughs> they were pushing on this broken bone. And like, oh, I don't know. So they just taped it up and I played the rest of the weekend. And it wasn't until like the Thursday, so four or five days later that they went to the doctor. It was still sore. And they're like, yeah, you've broken your foot. <laughs> so it was, um... no. <laughs> that was yeah. like a painful week. Yeah, so that was not too fun. Then I was in a moon boot for about three months. But um, yeah, that was probably my worst injury from rugby in, which you know is pretty lucky compared to a lot of my other mates. Um, but yeah, I didn't really get into paddleboarding until <clears throat> probably just towards the end of my of university. Um, I was just stand uh, stand up surfing, so I never got into the like the racing side of things until I think it was twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen. So it was the twenty fourteen. It was that was my first year. I'm um, really sort of following the racing scene and yeah it was kind of um 
I never really intended to get into it, to be honest. I, I, I always love surfing and I got a stand-up paddleboard because here in Sydney it can get quite crowded and I found it on a stand-up paddleboard. Um, my mum and my dad um, both had one each and I'd borrow it every now and then when the surf was small and I sort of found that you can have a lot of fun on lesser quality waves, which meant here in Sydney you could surf by yourself more often and have just as much fun as you would in a shortboard. So um, that's what got me into it, and it was, and I just sort of borrowed their boards for a couple of years when I was playing rugby, and then I think it was probably 2012 or 2013. I I bought my own first, I guess, stand up paddleboard, and it was a Fanatic 85 Pro Wave, and I remember it was that was a pretty good board back then. Um, and sounds incredibly small. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it depends what you look where you're coming from. So from a surfer, that was incredibly big because <laughs> I'm like, I ride, yeah, a, exactly, <laughs> yeah, like a five eleven or a six o shortboard, and I'm like, oh, how small can I go? It's still being able to stand on it, and that was what we came up with. Um, um, can you draw us a picture of how it went down and, and the first time you ever got into a stand up paddleboard, whether it was your own or somebody else's? Yeah, I can remember for sure. My mom still has the board. It was a, I think it was an eight eleven starboard. Don't even know what model it is, but it's yellow. So that shows how old it was because starboard's been blue for as long as I've been in the, you know, scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, I, I, I still, I actually have got to get back out, back out on it soon. It's a super fun board, like a full-on longboard sort of shape, but 811, so it's kind of short. It's like a mini mail. And I remember surfing all summer, like because I got the bug for it, and it just meant I was having more fun all the time because you know being on a bigger board and with the paddle you can throw it around still. And, um, yeah, that was, I guess, the beginning of it all. But my very first time, actually, it's a pretty good story. My first time ever on a stand-up paddleboard or first time seeing it, we were in, uh, over in Hawaii because um, my dad had a house over there at the time. And we saw Laird Hamilton surfing out Hookeeper. And we're like, well, that's pretty cool, you know. Sort of a bit weird, but that's, you know, Laird was ripping. We came home and my dad windsurfs, used to windsurf a bit. And um, he... He goes, we've got, we got to figure out how to do this stand-up thing. So he grabbed one of his bigger windsurfers and we grabbed a rake and we cut the prongs off the rake, just a plastic rake. And we went out our local spot and we were paddling around on this windsurf board with a, with a rake. Um, and that was <laughs> our very first sort of experience. And then there was a guy down the road uh, with one of the shops, wind, Windsurf Snow at the time. It's now WSS Boards. Sam, he, um, he, lent, he, he, got a, he got a custom board made up. So one of the local shapers had shaped him a stand-up paddle board and we borrowed that off him for a, for a week or so, and we we're like, okay, when he's coming to Australia, we're gonna get we're gonna we're gonna get one, and that's I guess how we all started. But I think I missed part of the story was that the rake. Did you have not have like any kind of paddle on the on the base of the rake? No, we would. You know, the rake has like a I guess the plastic rakes here in Australia. They're just like a triangle basically, and then at the bottom there's sort of you know just sort of little fingers that you rake up with. So we just cut the the finger bits off, and it was just like a a pole like a broomstick with a triangle at the bottom. And that was our paddle. <laughs> yeah. Saves you 400 US dollars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we didn't know yeah. any difference. So it was perfect. Uh, I'm sure it worked just as well. Well, not just as well, but uh, still. So um, competing in, in stand-up paddleboard, when did that start happening? Because um, you must have jumped into some sub-surf contests first and then, as you said, getting into the races later, right? Yeah. So one of the... Well, there's a local stand-up paddle club here in Sydney, this um, SBSC, Sydney Paddle Surfing Club. And that was, I, I, my brother worked at the stand-up paddle, or the windsurf slash stand-up paddle shop, uh, you know, through high school and school. So he, you know, he dragged us down to some of the events sometimes because the shop sponsored it and he, it was good for him to show face kind of thing and meet some of the people. Um, 
So we competed at that every now and then, but we weren't regulars. And when we did go, we, we went pretty well because we had a surfing background. Um, but we never, you know, we, we weren't obsessed with it. We would never go to everyone, just sort of when they were around. Um, but yeah, the first sort of serious competition I went to was one called the Marimbula Classic, which is, I think it's it's, a, it's an old windsurfing event that's sort of morphed into a kite surfing, into a stand-up paddle, now into a foiling event. And um, just one of those classic you know, uh, participation events and it's, there's no actual formal event. It's like a, it's like a expression session for the entire weekend. And I went down there with my girlfriend because I used to kite surf a fair bit and I thought, well, kite surfing and I'll do the stand up paddling as well. This is sort of a secondary thing and see how I go. And, um, I went to that event and I met a few guys that actually, it, to be honest, it changed my life. I, I, um, I met JC Shimahara, who's a, sup surfer from hawaii and toby cracknell who's a very good sup racer and sup surfer from the central coast and kai bates who are a very good sup surfer from um Al-Adala. and these three guys basically said to me oh you're surfing all right you should come to sunset um because jc lives in hawaii so you can stay at my place and we'll just let's let's just have a crack at the the stand-up world tour event um so this was 20 it was the end of 2013, so I think I went over 2014 and um, went over there and I made it, in, made it through the trials into the first, into the, you know, the stand-up world tour event, which for me, I was like, wow, I didn't think I'd ever be able to make it into this. And then um, I think I lost the first round, but because I'd made that first, made it into the main event, I earned the right to go to the rest of the trips um, on tour for the rest of the year. And so I went to Brazil, after I went home and packed up and went to Brazil and then I went to Abu Dhabi in the wave pool. And then I went to Latouche in France. And then Morocco at the end of the year. So it was a, yeah, it was. You it, just jumped was, on tour super quick. That was amazing. Not Doesn't sound like it was planned at all. Not at all. Just did the one event. And um, my stepdad actually works for Qantas. So I got, I guess, you know, a buddy pass, family pass, like sort of cheaper flights. So it was, I didn't have a sponsor at the time. I was just, um, just going around, like basically just doing a trip and doing all these events and hanging out with all the guys and, yeah, the Kai's and the Connors and yeah, it was, it was pretty cool for sure. Uh, so what are those guys like to hang out with? I mean, they must have been good fun. Kai Lenny and Connor Baxter. Yeah, Kai, Kai was pretty private. He sort of kept to himself. You know, he was already a superstar by then and, you know, lots of people, I guess, wanted to hang out with him. Um, but he was yeah, quite private. Um, Connor was more real, I guess. Like a, he was more like, like you and I just sort of just doing doing his thing he's just you know, on tour with everyone and um, Zane as well hilarious really funny guy um Casper and yeah all those guys um it was interesting to see the different personalities you know from you know traveling with them but um yeah that no, was very interesting and Abu Dhabi jumping into the wave pool was it the first time you've been in a wave pool yeah first and last <laughs> I haven't been in one since. Oh, yeah <laughs> is that like there's enough for you you never want to go again <laughs> no it was you know what it was it would have been awesome if we didn't have 40 other stand-up paddlers there with us um there's only one or two you know two peaks at the Abu Dhabi one and uh, it was expensive to hire it out to practice and awesome event but I think I caught like one wave before the event actually started and yeah I I didn't have a great event it wasn't that sort of surfing isn't really my strength (laughs) so it was a fun experience but um, if there was another event there I probably wouldn't be rushing back to it (laughs) So you're not you're not gagging to go down to Melbourne and, and get into urban surf. Uh, I'd like to have a go, but if I wouldn't go there for a, like to compete because I'm just 
technically for the exact same way, I, I guess my surfing requires a little bit more power <laughs> than yeah. than wave pools. At least that, than, at least than the Abu Dhabi wave pool could could produce. <laughs> Yeah, I mean they're they're talking about the beast um, down at Urban Surf. This is their, their their top end wave, and it looks pretty solid, pretty hollow. And a couple of the pros have reckoned. I think um, oh, I can't remember his name, but um, yeah, Joel Parkinson. I think he cracked his head on the bottom, and he was like, "Wow, that's that's quite, that's quite yeah. a severe wave." Yeah, that that I haven't. Yeah, actually, a mate of mine before the COVID nineteen thing all started, we was actually planning to head down there, and um, I was going to coach his son into a couple of waves down there and um that was i think we we're going to try to do that in march or april but obviously with everything that's going on <laughs> it didn't eventuate but we're you know sure, like yeah. to hit, hit, hit him up and get down there because yeah that one does look fun there's actually a couple other cool ones popping up all over the place now so um yeah it'd be interesting to see how it all works out yeah up in yapoon there's um surf lakes hey? those those guys are with their mad max tile plunger yeah yeah looks cool that one looks cool, I think. Oh, amazing. And it's nice because they're more inclusive. I think um, I, I would be a bit sort of hard-pressed to go and jumping into Melbourne with a with a stand-up paddleboard. I don't think they'd, they'd let you in. Yeah, apparently they're not. You're not allowed, they're only allowing shortboards. Like, I think even longboards are like hard longboards aren't even allowed at the moment, but um, bodyboards are. And yeah, so like, I, I kind of get it for the moment. But I think if you booked out the whole pool, you know, and you've just got it with you and a few mates, and there's no reason you couldn't stand up paddling it, really, if you knew what you were doing. Exactly. Okay, so let's get into your race history because you've got a, a hell of a list of accolades. I mean, Molokai, I'm just going to list them off and tell me if I'm wrong on any of these, okay? Molokai to Oahu champion in 2019, two times King of the Cut champion 2018-2019, five times Australian champion, the Doctor champion 2017-2018, and Olukai champion in 2017, APP World Tour SUP Surf runner-up in 2016, and the Sunset Beach Pro 2016, you came second. So wow, I mean that's an impressive last few years that you've you've got you've gone it up. But in a, it appears to me just on on my basic research that I did here that Molokai to Oahu um, has been a, a goal for you. When did you first yeah. hear about the race and? And what paddlers were winning at that time? Yeah, when I first got into paddling, actually, it was a year or two before I even got into paddling. My dad did it as a team with a, with a mate of his, with a mate of his, um, Norby. And um, at the time, I had no interest in it at all. You know, dad was just, you know, we, I dropped dad off for a paddle and we'd meet him back at a surf spot where we were surfing. And me and my brother would get into it. I'm like, what are you doing paddling? Like, the surf's pumping. Just, you know, ditch the paddling and come surfing with us. And he's like, no, nah, you know, got this event. It's, kind of a big one so i want to be training for it and um we were just like uh whatever you know more waves for us um fast forward a couple of years and i'm i've decided i want to paddle the hawaiian events and i'm leaning on dad hey, what did you do for this you know what sort of trains you do here and this and that and yeah that was super i guess it was i guess the first international paddleboard event i'd ever heard of really the m2o um growing up i hadn't really heard of it um one of the local guys, a mate of mine, actually, he, he turned out he was a three-time champion, Brad Gall, for the just prone the prone paddleboard. And so when I first got into racing, he's like, oh, this is the race you want to be doing. And so he sort of coached me a bit between him and my dad. They coached me and sort of got me into it. And, yeah, it was I was super lucky that growing up, I guess from 2010, my dad had a – my stepmom's American, so they had a house over in, in Hawaii. So um, – and – just happened to be on Maui above um, the Maliko Gulch, which if you know 
Maui and the Maliko Gold. It's, it's the start of the Maliko run. So it's a you know, 15 kilometer downwind run. It's probably consistently the best downwind run probably on earth um, in terms of ex- accessibility and, you know, reliability on wind. So once I got into, and we'd been going to Maui for years, for, for probably five or six years before I even understood what the Maliko run was. And when I, the first year I went over, I, I did a couple of Maliko runs and I'm like, has this been here the whole time? Like, this is epic. <laughs> it was like a, like a ski run. There was a shuttle down the end and you, you'd literally paddle down the coast, surfing waves the whole way and then get on the shuttle and come back up and do it again. And I was doing three or four a day when I first got into it. That The first year, I think it was 25th or 2014 was my first season paddling over there. Um, so that was that was my goal. I, from 2014 to, to 2019, I was just trying to do... The first year, I was just trying to get into the Molokai because um, they don't just take anyone um i put my name down and you know you go into a lottery which isn't a lottery that it's based on your experience and they pick you or don't pick you and um so 2014 i didn't get didn't get picked so i did decided i'd build up my resume i did the maui to molokai i did olokai and i did paddle like all the local races in hawaii and then went over to western australia and did the doctor and king of the cut and that was sort of building up my resume. So next year I'd get in. 2015 rolls around and a mate of mine comes over, Matt Nottich, and both he and I, completely new to the stand-up paddle scene, but we're, we're doing pretty well. We, did, we had a pretty good result over in at the Aussie titles in 2014 and we figured out oh, we should be able to get a start this year. Went over, didn't have a we, – we didn't get a, a spot. So we're just paddling and, we you know, we trained for the Malika race. We trained for M2M and – at the M2M race, we actually do... How do you train for the M2O, though? I mean, do you just do Maliko Gulch again and again and again? Is that it? That's what we were doing. We were just we were just training downwind. we just literally get as many kilometers as we could in good downwind conditions, which, um, looking back, it's good training and it's good... At the time, it was exactly what we needed because we didn't have that much downwind experience. Um, so what we needed to learn was how to be efficient downwind, um, I guess, or at least in bumpy ocean conditions. So us doing lots of downwind runs, it was like pressing fast forward on our experience. So instead of growing up doing downwinders, you know, an outrigger or, you know, paddleboard, stand-up paddleboard, we, we would literally, for the month of July, we would just fit as many downwind runs as we possibly could fit into, into a month. So, yeah, and it was fun. Like it was like, it was like going on the snow and just doing runs, you know, just going down from the top to the bottom, top to the bottom, top to the bottom. And we just, we literally did that as often as we could. And we actually ended up, we did the M2M, we actually got a pretty good result. I think Matt Nottich pushed Connor the whole way, and I think I came third or fourth in the Maui de Molokai, and we're like, oh, surely we're going to get a start to M2O. And we actually had to email the organizers and say, look, we've just got this great result, we're here, is there any chance we can get a start? And we both ended up both getting a getting an entry in 2015, it was our first year, um, looking back, we I kind of wish we didn't get the entry that year because there was no wind, so it was a completely flat M2O, which I think I took five and a half hours, which is almost an hour and a half longer than I took last year. <laughs> um, so it was almost a completely different race, but it was good to be a part of it. For those people out there who don't know, what is it, 32 miles or something? Wow. Yeah, it's just over 52 kilometers. Oh, wow. Okay. And normally, what, um, what I mean, with a full downwind, uh, with a you know, good, decent wind, what, what kind of time are the guys doing? Four hours, did you say? Yeah, the record's 3.59 by Travis. So, um, yeah, the top guys are normally around, if conditions are good, around the four-hour four hour mark. So how was 2016? 
Because there was one year where it was absolutely crazy weather, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so 2015 was flat, like completely flat, massive swell, zero wind, and a raging current against us. Um, and I was on a SIC, the, the V3 bullet, which has not a lot of rocker, but all the SICs have a bit of rocker. And oh, it was a tough race, mate. That was, that was hot. So many people pulled out. And I think I came fifth that year um, just because a lot of people didn't make it. <laughs> I remember, who did I paddle past? I think it was, it was either Connor or, or Slater Trout. Probably, I think it was actually both of them. They both pulled out. They were like, no, nah, this is not what I've trained for. And I was here and I'm like, man, I've trained two years for this. I've trained two years for this. There's no, no way in hell that I am pulling out of this race. So I finished and, you know, fifth place. I was pretty happy with for my first year. And, um, yeah, that was the beginning of it all. Excellent. And and then um, how did you feel when you were on the, you know, halfway through Molokai to Oahu in 2019? Um, were you leading all the way or how did it pan out? Uh, so 2019, with last year, was with, um, we had an epic battle with um, Michael Booth. And basically I knew, obviously he's a sub world champ. He, he's, he's probably the, the best paddler at the moment in terms of all types of racing at least distance racing especially. Um, and I knew it was going to be hard to beat, but he hadn't spent that much time in Hawaii and he hadn't spent that much time on, on an unlimited board. So going into it, I was the favourite because Travis Grant was out and Connor Baxter was over in um, Peru doing the Pan American Games. So there's a bit of pressure on me. But um, I was like, well, don't forget about Boothie and, and, and Kenny as well. Like I knew, I knew Kenny Kaneko was training pretty hard. So, you know, normally going into M2O, you have an idea of <clears throat> like a form guide because there's M2M about a month out and then a Maliko run about two weeks out and then there's M2O. So you kind of know where people are at. Kenny and Boothie both hadn't done either of those two races and the guys that had done M2M and the Maliko race weren't racing in the M2O. So for me, I had no idea. I came second at M2M, Travis won, I'd beaten Connor. So it was a pretty close race between us three. Um, but those guys weren't racing them too well anymore. So it was, was a really, I guess, a really different lead up for me. Because normally you've got, okay, you know, okay, so Connor's here, Travis is there. Um, and, you know, you sort of gauge yourself off them. But because they weren't racing, you had to sort of create, you know, are these guys even fit? Have they been training for it? This and that. Boothy's coming over. He's a complete unknown. He's never done any of the Hawaiian races. So it was, uh, yeah. It, halfway across the channel, Boothy was me and Boothy were right next to each other. Boothy had actually led for most of the race up at that point, and um, in my I've raced him a couple of times in Western Australia where he lives, and generally he falls apart. Not not falls apart, but he he has like a chink in his arm at about the hour and a half to two hour mark. And I remember looking at my watch, an hour and a half. I'm like, okay, well he's going to go a bit better today, which I guess I expected. And then the two hour mark, I remember looking at my watch. I'm like, man, he's still here. He's still out in front too pushing hard and I'm like there's no way you can sustain this for, for as long you know all the way across the channel and I think it wasn't until the two and a half or 245 mark that he he really fell apart and it, nutrition was his issue he, he said and he, he had to sit down and sort out his cramps and once he I got a gap on him and then he and then his nutrition fell apart and he had to stop and my boat's like don't worry about Boothie he's gone um let's let's think about the record and I was like Right, <laughs> I just want to finish. I didn't give a shit about the record, to be honest. And um, it was a good year, so almost everyone broke the record that year, except for 
I think like two or three divisions, the SUP being one of them. And I was only, I think I was like two and a half, three minutes off the record. And, it, you know, it could have come down to a wave at the end. But I was so not worried about the record paddling across. I was just worried about winning it. And they said that Boothie wasn't anywhere in sight, this and that. But I'm like, you know what? I know how good a paddler he is. If he gets a sniff, he will mow me down in that upwind leg. And the upwind leg was serious last year because it was such a windy year, which meant it was fast. It meant the last two or three Ks was upwind and like probably I've never gone so slow in that last section. <laughs> so I just wanted to finish. And um, yeah, it was it was a pretty emotional year because um, my dad was diagnosed with brain cancer and um, managed to get the win for him, oh. which was r- really oh. nice. Yeah. Um, That's fantastic. Wow. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was, it was a, super proud. Yeah, absolutely. So what's next for, for you? Are you going to, um, you're looking to get the record um, whenever the next um, M2O is? Yeah, I, I don't know. Like the record, it'd be a nice thing to get, but it's not really at the top of my list. I think always for me, it was winning it, just getting on top of the podium. And I hadn't, re- I didn't really expect to be, I kind of thought it'd be a longer journey because I came fifth. My first year, then I got two fourths. I got a third in 2018 behind Connor and Trav. And yeah, this year, yeah, 2019, I got the win without Connor and Trav. So, you know, it'd be nice to, to race Connor and Trav um, in 2021, I guess. Um, but then I'm not sure how much longer I want to be stand up paddle racing because the, the downwind foiling has been super, super fun. Um, and that's something that I'd love to do. Like if, if M2O, foil race was on a different day to m2o sub race i would 100 percent foil it um because it's on the same day as the stand-up paddle race i i kind of like i want to defend um my 2019 title um kind of two thoughts in my head i want to defend but it's also well i've already i've already won it what more is there to do i'm sure it'd be nice to win it twice but you know probably my my passion now downwinding is on the foil it's just it's so much fun and it's so much faster faster yeah, so much faster it's it's not even comparable it's like comparing walking to riding your bike you know it's you almost go on double the speed of what you are um or at least a third faster yeah 30 percent faster i'd say on the stand-up and you're using a wing as well yeah i've, I've been getting amongst the the, the winger ding i call it um but i don't know it's it, it's a little bit more like sailing than it is like downwinding like downwinding is so good because you can literally just you just got your paddle and you know if you want to go fast you got to paddle and pump and get down the bump whereas with the wing i found i probably haven't done enough of it um but it was only in the last couple of sessions that when i've sort of i guess they call free winged where you just sort of hold the wing at your hip and you can kind of just downwind like you would normally and it works pretty well but i guess i don't have an issue getting going i can paddle myself up onto the plane up onto the foil whereas if that's an issue that's where the wing is super helpful because you can get up just using a you know just pumping using the wind so the, the wings been it's been fun in those days that you know if here in Sydney we get winds that are the best wind for downwind is southerly or north northeasterly and they come with frontal systems. Um, we also get lots of westerly winds in winter, so you can't really downwind in a westerly. So with the wing, you can make the most of the wind, and you can there's a little sort of two kilometer run that you wouldn't bother driving to downwind, but with the wing, you can literally sail upwind and then either free wing back downwind or you just pack your wing up and paddle back with, with you know, start foiling. Um, so that's been fun. It's just sort of another challenge and opens up more options for, you know, conditions. So that's been super cool. It's amazing how it's progressed. And, and when you first saw videos of Kyle Lenny back in the day doing downwind foil runs in Hawaii, 
Did you realize how popular that was going to be? No, I had no idea. I, I, it looked super fun. And I was actually, I was in Hawaii when that one was, when he released that video. Um, we'd just done Olakai and um, he hadn't won. <laughs> and he's like, oh, we just released this video to try to get the limelight on him. But um, <laughs> but no, it was super cool. We're like, holy shit, like that's that's next level. You know, it was, um, yeah, it looks, looks like it was going to be super fun. But yeah, we weren't sure how accessible it was. You know, he was on this massive race board and with a foil and it looked it looks cool. Like, it was like, how is that even working? You know, the standard. But yeah, it was, we didn't know how access, like, you couldn't buy the foils. You couldn't buy the boards. It was, it's amazing how much things have progressed since then. But it's still pretty pretty difficult for the man in the street to start foiling, I think. I mean, it's it's good. You guys have got incredible skills and, and, uh, and strength and training. So it's a whole different ballgame to just average Joe picking up a foil and going for it, right? Yeah, it's funny when people sort of stop you in the street and say, how hard is that to learn? And it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember learning to surf? And they're like, no, I don't surf. I'm like, oh, um, have you ever ridden a unicycle? And they're like, uh, no. I'm like, hmm, you're probably going to have a hard time. But yeah, it's hard. It's harder than learning to surf. I always explain foiling like surfing on a unicycle because you're literally on this one point balancing forward and back. So it's interesting. And how did you actually learn? Did you go behind a boat and get towed? Was that it? I wish. No, I um, it was. I think it was like six months after Kai's video, um, and I was on Maui because there was an APP event at Hokeeper, and um, one of my friends, actually the Spencer boys, Jeffrey and Finn, I was um, hanging out with them a little bit, and they were working on foils with Alex Aguera, a go foil at the time. And I said, I want to have a go at that. They're like, oh, yeah, we'll introduce you to Alex. He'll, I mean, she's got a spare setup. Um, so we were introduced to Alex and he lent us a board and a foil and said, have fun, boys. Um, hold on to it until you have to go. So we had like a, uh, a week just paddling out and just foiling. And it was between um, Vinny, Vinicius Mart- Martinez um and myself and we were just sharing one of us to go on a sub surfboard the other one to go on a foil and we just swap over and that was when we first um we introduced to it and then a couple months later we went back again and had alex lent it to us for another couple of days and i said where do i buy one like can i buy one off you because i know you, i can't take this one this is yours he's like yeah yeah well um I'll, I'll send one to you and so he i ordered one and it was like a three month or t- two months before it arrived to me in australia and um that summer, all I did was foil. It was like six months. Um, foil-brained is the term, and that is what I was. <laughs> all I could think about was foiling <laughs> for that summer, and it was, yeah. But uh, no, no no boat, no towing, um, nothing easy. <laughs> I learned in the waves, which is like the worst, hardest way to learn, but I didn't injure myself, luckily, and um, yeah, I wish boats, towing boats was known. <laughs> yeah. Have you taken them out in big waves, foils? Um, I've, the biggest waves I've taken, I've, I've paddled into some pretty solid waves on my stand-up foil, um, which was super fun but super scary too. Um, and then I've towed in as well, which is way more, I guess, safe and accessible for most people. Um, but it's almost too easy, the towing. It's like you just get towed into this wave and you just, like, you don't have to paddle out. You can do it with your hair. If you don't fall off, your hair is dry the whole time because you're... You don't, have to, you don't have to be near the white water and you just get towed in, you sort of ride it for as long as you can and then you get picked up and you get taken back out and you catch another wave and it's, it's like cheating. It's like, it's like having a, like going down, like I like to compare it to skiing or snowboarding because it, it, that's what it feels like. It'd be like going down a run and 
you know, when you paddle out, you got to hike all the way up the hill. That's the equivalent. Whereas with us, when you're towing, you, you, you get towed to the top by a, like a skidoo and then you go down the bottom and then you get towed back up to the top straight away and you have another run and you go back, back up to the top and it's just like you can ride like a month's worth of waves in like a 40-minute session because you're literally just like just doing like you get so many waves and we're going to spots where there's no one else so it's yeah it's it's cheating <laughs> the foiling toe foiling it's so much fun so like for for new new people who are trying to get out into big waves and on a stand-up i mean when i when i say big waves i don't i mean like just six to eight foot you know nothing massive um because it's, it's really tough to get out in larger waves on a stand-up how do you what's the what's the trick is it just going out in a, in a where there's a channel yeah so hawaii is so good for it because waves like sunset there is a, literally a river that runs out to sea. It's it's actually it's actually hard to paddle in. It, it's such a strong current that pulls you out. Um, so yeah, back home here in Sydney, if, if there's a big swell, it's a pain in the ass to get out. It's, it's really hard because there's it's all beach breaks and there's a few reef breaks, but you know beach break and a reef on the outside. So it's um on a stand up, you've just got to learn to paddle fast and read the ocean really well. So be able to get out at the right time. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. And take quite a few in the head, I guess. Oh, for sure. Yeah, lots. So you've just done a fantastic deal with Sonova. Uh, what's the story behind your relationship with them? Yeah, so um, yeah, I've been working with Sonova for the last four years, I think. And kind of all started because for Molokai, I wanted a board that was competitive. And we kind of thought that the SICs were a bit dated and that there was a better, better design that could be created. So I um, actually ordered a custom board off Marcus Tardrew um got it made through deep and yeah just sort of sort of right time right place we were chatting and i made a mind jc shimahara that my hawaiian friend he was sponsored by sonova and he's like oh you know you should try and chat to these guys and i'd never heard of sonova so i was like no i'm pretty happy with jp um and then it kind of all just fell into place that sonova wanted to do it create like what they called a race a sup race team and they wanted couple guys to sort of head it so to, to i guess help develop it and so kelly margetts marcus tardrew and myself were the, were the three that sort of created the, the sup race unit so we he, they wanted us to create competitive stand-up paddle race boards and they wanted us to race them at events so people knew what they were and um yeah super lucky that and we sort of did that whole sort of race unit thing and then um sort of a part of the deal was originally like we'd We'd work on a range for myself, and that was originally the, the the James Casey Flash, which is I'm stoked with how that board went. And um, just recently, with all the foiling stuff going on, I'm like, we need to create some foil boards, like really work, like do some R and D and work on it. And, and I said, I want to work on it. And with between Marcus and I, we'll, we'll come out with something really good. But like, okay, yeah, they sort of gave us the range, do whatever you want. Here's a you know, you can make this many boards, and you know, good luck to you kind of thing. So we got a few boards made, and we're testing downwind conditions surf conditions for the foil and and then i had a few other ideas for surfs up so we sort of worked on that too and is that the revolution yeah the revolution really love that board and i look at your video explaining it, it looked really amazing it just looks like i just wanted to get on that thing straight away yeah it's, it's sort of a different board and sort of the whole it's a good little story that how the revolution came to be i was surfing uh, where the sonova factory is in thailand there's a little beach break wave out the front um and great for a long board, but you probably, you need pretty good conditions to surf it. I went over there and was up surfing. I was just testing some of the boards out and Bert was out, Bert Berger was out in his long boards, the Sonova Shaper. And um, 
I said to him, oh, can, can we swap boards, Bert? He's like, what, you want to stand up this? I'm like, yeah, I reckon I want, I want to see if I can stand on it. He goes, okay. So we swapped and I got a couple of ways and he was blown away. He's like, how? There's no way you could do those turns without a paddle. Like that's literally, there's something in that. And I'm like, yeah, that was awesome. Like the board felt great. It was a little bit small for me, but you know, Bert's a big guy and me on a stand up, I could kind of get it to work. And I'm like, we've got to make a board like this. And he's like, yeah, that's definitely on the to-do list. Kind of got lost, you know, other projects more important and then just recently I'm like, okay let's do it but let's let's make so i chose the biggest stand-up so the biggest longboard in their range which is called the big boy and it's like a 10 footer it's like a like a waikiki tanker basically i think it's like 88 89 liters and so i got i got a production one of them we started with that so yeah that works well but it's not the most performance was okay i got a ride I got, I got a board i'm gonna put this rocker line this and that made that board for me and then i found that one almost had too much rocker so um we basically split the middle and so it was a third board we tried and that was the revolution. It was just perfect, really clean outline, little hip on the the tail. So it surfed like a short board uh, off the tail and with the fine rails, it just, it all worked. It, you know, it works in ankle high to overhead and um, yeah, I'm stoked. Bert's done a great job on that board. And, um, and you can get a lot of speed and flow, I guess, out of that. Oh, with, with you know, just with sheer waterline, it just glides. But then when you step back on the tail, the tail the tail actually isn't too dissimilar from the flash. That like you step back and it's like you're riding a little board again. So yeah, no, I'm super excited. Sounds amazing. So I'd love to get one of those one day. So yeah, j- just like that, like we we sort of designed a few boards and we upgraded the flash. So it's now called there's a new board called the Flow, and we have the Revolution and then the foil boards, the Pilot and the Aviator, and they're. Yeah, loving all of them. They're all going really well. The flow is kind of good and everything from, you know, just breaking to six foot, the revolution, you know, same sort of thing. And then we've got a, a new one called the throttle, which I used at sunset last competition. And that one's um, really good when it's really bumpy, messy conditions and sort of bigger surf. And then, you know, the foil boards, the, the pilot and the aviator for the stand, the stand up and prone foil. And yeah, nah, super excited with how it's all come out and really happy with the end product. It's great. And you're selling them all on your site along with having um, Coach Casey. And that appears to be a big part of your earnings. Um, I don't know if I'm right or wrong there, but how's yeah, business no. in general for you? Can you can you make a viable living out of SAP? Yeah, at the moment, it's um, I'm not making a lot of money, but I'm getting by. You know, it's um, I love it. So it's part of what I'll be doing anyway. And I'm lucky enough that um, the, there's enough people here in Sydney that, you know, they want to learn from me. Um, just based on my experiences overseas paddling and, um, you know, even results here at home. So I never intended to get into coaching stand-up, but probably in 2016, I think, after I'd done a couple of Molokai's, one of the local guys asked if I would be interested in coaching him. And I was like, oh, I could, but I'll just basically be telling you what I'm doing. He's like, yeah, that's fine. That's all I want. I just want to know. I want some guidance on how I can get, how I can become a better paddler. And um, so that's kind of how it started and it's just sort of flourished from there. Uh, I now coach the the local Sydney Paddle Surfing Club. I write them a program throughout the year and sort of peaking for each of their local races. Um, and I've sort of expanded on that. Um, I coach privately as well. So like I do the club, I do private clients and I've just recently since the COVID period, I've started doing online analysis. So people send in a video to me and I'll... Um, critique it basically and give them feedback on how they can improve um and that's been great because i wasn't doing you know one-on-one lessons um so i was just sort of doing the lessons basically online and i've also during this covid period i've created like an online 
learning module. So it's got, you know, basics on flat water technique to how to do a kick turn, how to do a beach start, how to do a crossbow turn, um, working on an ocean and downwind module now. So basically sharing my knowledge on how to how to downwind and little tricks and you know skills that you got to practice so you can be um you know competent out to sea or in in the bay in in the strong windy conditions which has been really good so that's really i guess growing my business a fair bit um as well as doing training plans that's definitely the way of the future and obviously so it's great to see you've had a a fruitful lockdown i mean that's amazing (laughs) like there's so many good things that have come out of lockdown what is your biggest lesson that you've learned from lockdown i guess it's don't take anything for granted because you know how's that in within the space of a month all our all the travel and you know things we took for granted were just taken away from us I guess um, so it's one really cherish those around you so your friends your family people that are close to you and you know don't, don't take them for granted but also don't take the travel and all that sort of stuff for granted either because you know people that do travel internationally we're so lucky you know there's so many people that don't have that opportunity and I think those that do it a lot you kind of think oh, I've got to travel again you know this it's a pain in the ass got to jump on a plane da, da, da. but yeah it's it's we're so lucky that we can do that um but I think also I guess in terms of like working and you can create like there's again you got to think outside the box don't think this is the only way to do it there's so many, if you put your head down and you know really think about something that might work you can create something new and different and and you can market that for yourself to you know create sort of a new little niche um, platform for yourself you know at least for you know, for the coaching sort of stuff that's what i found well judging by the look of your website it looks like you've got a bright future ahead so that's fantastic well done that's that's amazing yeah thanks well james thanks so much for spending all the time chatting to us i know it's uh, it's been quite a long interview which is great and we've got some absolute gems in there so but where can we find you online um you can find me on instagram at um james underscore underscore casey or you can go to my website at www.caseyaus.com excellent well yeah thanks once again really appreciate your time james and and, uh, yeah good luck for the future yeah thanks so much nick and nice to meet you and chat thank you for listening to sup fm the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are if you like what you've heard please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the 